The Peabody and Emmy Award-winning 30 for 30 documentary film series presents The Tuck Rule, a documentary that examines one of the most controversial plays in sports history. See the legendary Charles Woodson and Tom Brady discuss, for the first time, the call that changed it all. Watch live February 6th at 8 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. Also available next day on ESPN+. Three times a week, The Right Time with Bomani Jones podcast brings you the latest from technology, music, and the very best analysis of the games. Plus, there's a robust community of friends, including Dominique Foxworth for Foxworth Fridays. That's The Right Time with Bomani Jones on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Listen wherever you get your podcasts and on ESPN's YouTube channel. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. Hi, my name is Michael Shore, and my dilemma is that I'm about to do a lengthy interview with a woman who hasn't even bothered to finish the book I wrote. Well, I'll have you know that I do not have a rebuttal for this very accurate point, uh, nor do I have a solution for your dilemma. Um, I do have an excuse, and that is hours of watching and analyzing playoff football for my other jobs the last couple weeks. Also, my own mistake of booking basically three guests in one month that all had new books, um, because I got to read yours, and I got to read Lindsey Vaughn's, and I got to read Kendall Coyne's, Um, and honestly, if I could clone myself I would and I and I would have read the whole book instead of half um my only solace is that Aristotle might have excused me uh he might have argued that I found the perfect amount of fortitude and courage uh because I exhibited fortitude when facing the adversity of too many books to read and I showed courage in choosing sleep over finishing the book uh despite a potential tongue lashing from you today um so that's good. Well, I mean, Aristotle would say that if I were, uh, quote, a free male born with the potential to become ethically virtuous and practically wise. Unfortunately, uh, as a woman, I uh, uh, my tiny lady brain isn't capable of thriving and therefore I'm not required to be virtuous and ethical. So, you know, if you don't understand any of that by the end of the podcast, you will. That's what she said. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. This week, it's a fabulous conversation with the funny and fascinating and smart Mike Schur, who is making his record third appearance on the pod. Uh, how he finds the time, I do not know, because I am exhausted just reading his credits. In case you don't know, he was a producer and writer for The Office, co-created Parks and Recreation, created The Good Place, co-created Brooklyn Nine-Nine, was a producer on Master of None, is a co-creator of Rutherford Falls, executive producer for Hacks. He also played Moe Schrute on The Office. He is Ken Tremendous on Twitter and in podcasts and sports writing endeavors. And he has a new book out, How to Be Perfect, The Correct Answer to Every Moral Question. We talk about what originally inspired his research into ethics that led to The Good Place and this book. Uh, we do some housekeeping from previous episodes, including advancing some conversations about the Me Too movement and sexual harassment on sets. Um, I ask him the question, and I challenge him with a little would you rather. If you haven't already, I'd recommend going back and finding the first two podcasts with him um, and listening to them before. It's not required, but um, certainly more fun. And he's so fantastic. If you haven't heard them yet, you really should. He's the best. Enjoy this convo. That's what she said. 
I feel remiss in not having some sort of jacket, gold, green, or otherwise, for Mike Schur as he becomes the first ever three-timer on That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. I don't have uh, I don't have Steve Martin. I don't have Marty Short. I don't have Tom <laughs> Hanks. I have, I have, well, first of all, there's no one else to roll out to welcome you because you're the first. And I don't remember how they did that the very first time on SNL. You got it. Well, I think they made it a thing when Hanks hosted and Steve Martin and Martin Short and all those people were in the club, Paul Simon and everything. So I, you can right. you can start your own tradition, is what I'm saying. You can do whatever yeah. you want, right? You Perfect. can give give me a, an old beat up Cubs hat and tell me that it's there. The- you go. <laughs> uh, you are wearing a Red Sox hat, so I would prefer that for the rest of this communication. I fear sure. it wouldn't get there in time for this podcast. So <laughs> next time, number right. four, you're getting a beat up old Cubs hat, Great. and from that point on, you will welcome all the three and four timers with their own beat up Cubs hats. That's right. Um, I went back to listen to our previous encounters. And uh, the first time I hadn't watched any Parks and Rec or The Good Place, uh, Hmm. I just watched other things. And then the second time we talked, I was most of the way through both of them. And now I have completed both. I'm obsessed. I want to go back to the beginning and start again. I'm sad that they're over. And you've left me now with a book instead of just uh, (laughs) TV content. Now I have to read a book. And I have to watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Rutherford Falls. Uh, you're, You're really occupied and dominating my free time. Uh, I appreciate it, but uh, you need to take a pause so I can catch up. I like how uh, the 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 disappointment in your voice when you said, now you've left me with a book. <laughs> a like book. I, gave you, I gave you homework a to do. <laughs> yes. Okay, so yeah, I've, I'm halfway through the book. I'm loving it so far. We're going to talk a lot about the book, but since I did go back and listen to our previous conversations, I have some catch up to do. Um, the last time we spoke was September of 2020, which okay. was a year or so after the first time we spoke, which was in 2018. And I'm wondering if you've watched The Americans. Still have not. Can you believe it? <laughs> I, it is. And, and, and now I'm in this zone where it's like we just were all trapped in our houses for two years. And so now it's like when if not now, when like I yeah. it's and it hangs over me like a dark cloud that I've never seen the show. It's like I have watched every episode of the new Sex in the City spinoff yes. thing that's happened. Yeah, Miranda I, looks fantastic. And, that and grayish st- pink hair is working. And I still haven't watched a show that many of my friends, including you, tell me is the greatest drama right, right, that's right. ever been made. No, so. I haven't I haven't seen it either. I just like to pick on you about it. Um, and oh, now I, I thought think you it would be... see it. In my memory, you no. had seen it and were taunting me for not having watched it. No, it was just that you brought it up as something as a, in our conversation about about how you decide what to watch when there's so much content. And you said if all the writers love something, then you know it's good. And so you watch the things that other writers tell you you need to watch. And everyone was telling you the Americans, but you're like, but if I watch that now, then I'm not watching the other thing that's happening right now that everyone's talking about. Um, and then I thought COVID might give you the push. Now I just think it's a personal affront to Carrie Russell. I think you've got a beef with her. <laughs> kind of vendetta. I'm going to start it in the media <laughs> that, that they have a serious issue with her. And otherwise, you know. <laughs> uh, that would be as good an explanation as any for why I haven't watched it. Because right. it really is. It's a point of, of embarrassment for me. I do this thing. Um, where every year I, I try to read one great book that I've never read, where that's literally, I, I was an English major in college. And so there are these books that I've never read that are points of, of personal shame. Ditto. And, right. So so the pandemic hit, and I was like, well, now, again, really no excuse. I have all the time in the world. I can't leave. I can't go outside. I'm not. Our work was shut down. So I read Moby Dick, which I had never oh. read before. Here's my review of Moby Dick. It's so good. Yeah. It's really good. Isn't that amazing? When <laughs> yeah. I, I read East of Eden a couple of years ago, and I was like, 
Well, I get it now. Well done, John well Steinbeck. Well done, John yeah. Steinbeck. And, uh, that is and a good so book. <laughs> I'm tr- I, I do have this sense in my life now of like triage where it's like that you only have so much time. You mm. only have so many years left to live. And I'm trying to like organize my books and TV shows and movies around like what have I never like I watched Chinatown because I'd never seen yes. Chinatown. And I and my I do sister, my I can't, exactly well spoiler <laughs> alert don't whatever soiling green is people <laughs> you haven't watched it by now it's not my problem <laughs> I like that attitude so I I I really I mean obviously we all want to waste time we all want to watch silly things or read silly things or whatever and I don't think there's anything wrong with that but I do now I don't know if you have this but I have this sense of like. I cannot be frivolous in the way that I make these choices. Like I have to concentrate and like check things off yes. a list because I've there's been not enough that time. For the most part, but I I still sometimes need to shut the brain off. So you know the of bachelor course. hasn't gotten the boot yet. You know Although what the this, bachelor this, the bachelor got the boot for me. My wife and I stopped one? watching. No, I can't so you remember when. Michelle, I liked Michelle. A couple a couple sequences ago, my okay. wife and I looked at each other. And we held each other by the hand and we said, it's time <laughs> to stop watching The Bachelor. Oh, that's what I did with all the Real Housewives about six or seven years ago. I go, no, this isn't yeah. who you are. <laughs> Fortunately, The Bachelor still is very much who I am. Right. And I'm, I got a couple more episodes before this current season is gone, though. It's absolutely brutal. It feels like they cast a bunch of women from 2002. Oh. It's like that kind of everyone's catfighting and it's all about the crazy drop. It's like... Ugh. I can't. Okay, yeah. so let's let's continue the cleanup from the last two um last two times you were on. Great. We had a, a sort of serious conversation about the cleansing effect of Me Too in the very first pod, particularly about you having worked with a number of people who later had been revealed to to have bad behavior on set, and how collectively mm-hmm. everyone sort of had to look back at themselves and a lack of uh, of action or speaking up. And then the second pod, we talked about the cleansing of, of COVID uh, and the potential of um, doing things differently because of that. And also the cleansing of social justice issues that you felt there were a lot of stories being told that wouldn't have been told if we hadn't had this racial reckoning and George Floyd and the protests. Um, I'm wondering if you look back, if you feel like those are changes that remain. I know we're not out of COVID yet. But we're out of it in the sense of vaccinations have allowed more people to get back on set and to do things in person. Um, Do you feel like the workplace and the business has changed for good in some ways, whether it's those stories being told or the habits around the workplace? Not in in any way because of COVID. COVID has only made things worse and sadder and scarier Mm. and and. and I and more difficult. Like uh, it, the the conversations that I'm having now with almost everyone who does what I do, are um, this is not sustainable. Frankly, like uh, I mean, for for many reasons, partly the emotional and mental health of the people who are making television and have to be in what you would consider high risk situations every day is it's taking its toll. And and we. They and we have held up fairly well for almost two years now. You know, we're coming up on the two-year anniversary of the day that we were in the production meeting for the pilot of Rutherford Falls and got an email that said, we're going to take a pause and and Mm. shut down. And at the time it was, let's just wait two weeks. We'll just wait two weeks and see where we are. uh, That was March, I think, 11th or something. So we're pretty close to two years now. And the there are more and more stories of just people being kind of at the end of their rope and i don't who can blame them right it's like they're i can do my job largely 
from the comfort of my own home and the safety of my own home. And so can the other writers. It's far from ideal. It kind of sucks, really. It takes away a lot of the creative energy that you get from having people in the same place at the same time. Makeup artists and property masters and first uh, ADs and actors cannot do that. And they ha- are on what amounts to they're on the front lines where the rubber meets the road of production and have been for two years. And it's really ground them down. And there's a lot of exhaustion. I mean, obviously, I feel the need to say this. It is nothing compared to the mental and emotional exhaustion of nurses or EMTs or any number of other professions that have actually been on the front lines. But in my little corner of this, you can sense the weariness and the strain and the exhaustion. And so everyone is hopeful um, that we are close to a point that begins to feel like it's safe and normal. No one knows for sure, obviously, um, but no one has taken, there has not been a single good thing that has come out of this uh, at all. Yeah. And, and I would dare say that's probably true for the great majority of the great, of the, of the people in every industry. So no, the answer is no for COVID. I mean, the other two things you mentioned, Me Too and social justice, the answer is unequivocally yes, in that we are now through the kind of real gear grinding moments of those of those moments and what you sense now is that the the industry is settling a little bit into what you would think of as a new standard in terms of who we represent on TV how we represent them who control who has power who is actually running shows who's directing movies and 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 who's telling getting to tell the stories from their perspective you know Rutherford Falls is one tiny part of that but it was the first time there had ever been a Native American showrunner on American television anywhere. And then right wow. behind that came Reservoir Dogs, which was Sterling Harjo's show on FX, which is the second time that there has ever been a Native American director's showrunner. So, those, and, and it doesn't feel like a blip. It feels like the, the, you know, things on, the pieces on the chessboard have been rearranged and there are new characters and new pieces on the chessboard and they're not going anywhere. So, that part of it, I think, has been really wonderful, and we are. It does feel like we have entered a new, a new sense of what's normal and who has, in terms of who controls the capital, and the and the money and the power and all that sort of stuff. Now, should be noted again, long way to go. Like right. we didn't. It's not done. This project is not it. done. Right. Yep. But you do sense that we're never going back to the other way. We're never going back to a situation where there are shows featuring eight all white cast members <laughs> living in New York City. <laughs> like that's just not in an apartment it, they can't afford. That's right. Or, like that been and through this. <laughs> and that is not to disparage any shows that came before us. It is simply to say that the way that the town now thinks about representation is is not just different but permanently different. I yeah. believe I'm right when I say that. Yeah. You know, about the Me Too thing, I'm I'm curious for your perspective, and I don't know if you read it, but there was a Vanity Fair interview with Jeff Garland that I can almost guarantee his PR people uh, regretted that he decided to do. Uh, usually they just have their PR people tell them no comment, and instead he decided to talk about this HR investigation into his onset conduct that had apparently happened a couple years running, um, but they hadn't found something worthy of 
you know, firing him. And I will say, I've met Jeff Garland a number of times. He's a big Chicago sports fan. He's always seemed so nice and so great. And so I was disappointed to hear that there had been repeated accusations. But then I was fascinated by what he said and alluded to without ever being specific. And he said, my opinion is I have my process about how I'm funny in terms of the scene and what I have to do. Some feel like it makes for a quote unquote unsafe workspace. And he kept referring to this process or these mm -hmm. things that he needed to do in the moment. And I'm just curious from your perspective, because whatever I say about that is going to be, you don't know what you're talking about. You're not a comedian. You don't make TV. You don't whatever. But you've been around the most hilarious people on all different kinds of sets. And do you feel like there is still that feeling in comedy of whatever it takes to get the funny or anything goes because comedy's different, which was always the excuse early on when people would bring mm -hmm. up things. It was just like, well, that's comedy. You have to sign an agreement that says anything we say in here isn't an HR violation because we're just right. being funny. Um, what did you think? Or if, if you hadn't heard that, what do you think about the idea of this process? Well, this is the central question that comedians have faced in this specifically usually stand-ups or mm -hmm. people from that world performer performative comedians um but writers as well which is uh, he's not wrong okay let's start there every comedian has some kind of process or set of things that he or she does to kind of just like stay on the on the balls of their feet and be in the moment and and find where the rhythms are and find what's funny and probe and poke around because it's a very inexact science, right? If you're if you did what a lot of comedians do and you were a research chemist, people <laughs> would say, "What are you doing? You don't need this to be a good research chemist. You need to have you need to know how much of that chemical to pour into that beaker. Like this right. is a, but it's not, comedy is the most ethereal and exact science in the world. And so comedians throughout time have had their own processes. They, and they, some of them are shocking. Some of them try to just blurt out things or challenge people or throw things in people's faces that, that get a reaction or that test what is, what's, where's the edge? Where's the line? All that sort of stuff. Right. So he's not wrong that everybody has that process. Now, I will say also, I've never worked with him either. I've only met him once or twice. I don't even know if I've met him in person. But the, the problem is, is that what you are not taking into account is, well, other people might have their own process for just living their lives <laughs> and being in a place of comfort and safety and happiness. And if your process that you are emitting from your body interferes with their process for just going about their lives or having a safe work environment or anything else, you have to modify your process. It's on you. Like, and, and you don't get to say, everyone, this is my process and everyone around me has to deal with it. Because you, if you're a stand-up and you're alone in your room, do whatever you want. But as mm -hmm. soon as you're in a situation where you're around other people and the, the waves that are emitting from you bump into the waves emitting from other people, <laughs> they get a vote in how their workplace is run and feels and and can be safe and happy for everyone. So yeah. I think this is one of those deals, and I don't know the details. I was not there. I've never worked on that show. I don't know him, blah, 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 blah. But I think this is one of those deals where he is not wrong when he says that this is a thing that com com comedians need. And also the people who had problems with it are, of course, not wrong for having problems with it because that they work there, too. And so this is like it's, it's a good metaphor in a weird way for like 
how any problem in any society is <laughs> negotiated and solved, which is, hey, everybody gets to vote here. Everybody gets to weigh in. And we find some place in the middle where we set a bunch of rules and boundaries and guardrails so that everybody gets to be wherever they want to be in a way that makes them feel yeah. safe. And so and often we err on the side of the more powerful person, which doesn't necessarily mean we've found the happy medium. But right. in this case, it felt like maybe the push became it was too many times and too many investigations. And yeah. Just, and, yeah. And and I and again, don't know the details, but like the old system what that we have left behind was everyone be quiet and don't say anything and if you say anything you're in trouble and let the right. let the person in power or let the person with authority behave the way that they want to behave and that system is gone now and the new system is hey if something is troubling we get to speak up now that leads to a lot of confusion and a lot of anger and a lot of um when the when the rules change people who lived by the old rules are often <laughs> confused and befuddled and we should, I think, be a little bit at least sympathetic with that right. confusion and befuddlement while we are also saying, okay, I understand that this is the way that you act or you behaved or used to or whatever. That has to change now, and here's how we go forward. Like yeah. it's, There has I think to be that, an effort, though, to understand that 100%. and a desire to, to make good on and, what and people an, are telling you. And an understanding that, they're, that you are not right and they are not wrong, <laughs> right. right? That it's not like, well, but okay, so now come around to my way of thinking. Like yeah. The, the, yeah. the acceptance of the new rules is, is the first step in any kind of progress, you know? So this actually leads us perfectly into something you've been spending a lot of time on. And I would imagine there are different ways that all the great philosophers would see that particular problem. You've written a book, How to Be Perfect, the correct answer to every moral question. And of course, mm -hmm. now that I've watched the entirety of The Good Place and the ending of it was so beautiful and lovely, and that's why I want to start all over it and, and see it again. Um, it's very clear that so much of the work that went into that show started to become a focus for you. I want to ask a big picture question. Okay. Looking back at all those philosophers that you studied and all the different time periods in which they lived and the greatest concerns for people during those time periods changed throughout. It was, how do I just feed myself? How do I find out which berries are going to kill me? How do I <laughs> build a building? How do I create art? How do I work with technology? It all changes. And yet there were these great thinkers who cared about being good and morals and ethics. Why? Why do you think humanity has always, some of our greatest minds have always cared? Well, because I think that after you get past the basic necessities of survival, and when I say get past, I mean over tens of thousands of years of evolution, <laughs> like this isn't a quick process, right? And you start to form collectives of people, whether it's 200 people in a series of, you know, crude huts or... 5,000 people in a burgeoning town that's like a trading village or 50,000 people in a city or whatever, there comes a moment in which the issues of how we treat each other become centrally important. It becomes a question of law, right? Is it, am I allowed to steal these things from my neighbor? It becomes a question of, um, of, a dish, of not just survival, but mutually beneficial survival, right? It's like, hey, if you do this for me, I will do this for you. And what does a contract mean and all that sort of stuff? It's inevitable that at some point you're going to start asking questions of like, well, what are, what are the better ways to do these things and what are the worst ways to do these things? And that's all ethics really is. It's literally in any situation you find yourself, what are, what's this, 
what's this gradation? What's the scale from the worst way to do it to the best way to do it? And how white, how might we all aim at the better ways of doing it? So it's just a natural outcropping of any kind of group of people. Eventually, you're going to get to these questions of like, well, how should I treat you and how should you treat me? Yeah. So I think that, you know, Aristotle was writing 2,400 years ago, and he was far from the first person to write about this. There's fragments of, of Greek philosophy that predate him by hundreds and hundreds of years. There's ancient Egyptian writing on this subject. There's all sorts of, you know that as soon as there were societies and civilizations, people started asking these questions, which is why I think it's so interesting to pick them up now and, and ask them of, of ourselves. Yeah. Um, someone once told me on this podcast, research is me-search. Um, so a lot of mm. us look into the things that we care about because of something about ourselves. And I find on the podcast, I don't know why, I read a lot about habits and human behavior. I'm fascinated about why we do the things we do, how we make choices, how we become happier by the choices that we make, and just like live optimal lives and not in a uh, pyramid scheme or like uh, go to like an auditorium full of thousands of people and let's talk about thriving. Just I don't know why. And I'm a very happy person. So it's not like I'm seeking that out because I can't find happiness. In fact, I have an abundance of it and I just want to keep searching for more of it. And where, how can I get even better at the happiness stuff that I like so much? I feel like you're that way about ethics and being good. And we talked in the previous podcast how we share, we hate people cutting in lines. Mm -hmm. We're not really big on rule breaking, although I definitely play music too loud after curfew. And I've definitely <laughs> like, maybe, you know, I definitely speed. Um, you are more <laughs> certain about the rules and uh, adhering to them than I am. But we both care a lot about that. So I wonder... In looking into the amount of time in your life you have now spent on this book, On the Good Place, in reading Ethics for Fun, why do you care so much about being good? It's a great question, and I don't know the answer other than to say I seemingly was inclined toward this subject from a very early age. Like, I was, an, I, I was the kid who, like, when the teacher said all right, everybody line up, I would move immediately to wherever the line was and then looked around at the other kids and was like, what are you doing? She told us to get in line. Like, well, how can And you there's no like great historical track record of kiss asses. So you I, went with I, philosophers? I guess I went with philosophers. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I write about this in the book that like, that's always been my like orientation somehow, my weather vane pointed in that direction. And I have always thought of it as a good thing, a purely good thing, an ethical thing, a correct thing. Reading some of this philosophy, I have come to understand that anything in in massive excess can be really annoying. And there was literally a moment where I was reading Aristotle and thinking about this tendency in myself and being like, oh my God, am I the most annoying person who ever, I think I might be the most annoying person who ever lived. And I went to my wife and I was like, am I incredibly annoying in this regard? And she was like, yes, did you not know that? Of course you are. Like, And it was very eye-opening. And, and so I think that part of it is just my inclinations. And then part of it is that I am I get really excited when I learn stuff. I just always mm -hmm. have. And I, I love like my my ideal vacation. This is another thing my wife and I disagree on. My ideal vacation is to go to a place I've never been before and to hire a tour guide and to have the tour guide stand immediately next to me and just pour facts into my ear. Like Me too. See, okay. And ask a million questions. Yes. And my husband's like, oh my God, why do you care? I'm like, I care a lot about how yeah. they make wine in Santorini. It's volcanic ash, babe. They don't have any pests. It's, it's so like, interesting. How would you not want to And then I bring it up over this? and over and he's like, oh my God, no one cares. 
<laughs> right. So you get this, right? Like we, yes. my wife and I, for our anniversary, we went to Amsterdam. And I'd never been to Amsterdam before. And we hired this tour guide. And she was explaining to me in intricate detail the way that the buildings were built to withstand the erosion from the canal system. And I was like, I never want to leave. I'm so happy right now. And my wife, who's jet lagged, is like, we were on a boat. And my wife was like, I'm sleepy. And I'm going to take a nap on this <laughs> oh boat. And gosh. she did. And we should we should travel together. I know we our should. spouses can sleep, and we can walk eighteen thousand steps I and mean, listen to a tour guide. I it's so I I think that it's a combo platter here of like I I just was pointed in this direction, and then when I started reading about it, I just really loved reading about it. I loved learning that mm-hmm. I'm the most annoying person who ever lived <laughs> because I didn't know that before, and that yeah. I think that's of great value to me. Yes. And now I know I can change my behavior and be yes. less annoying to people. An excess of dutifulness, as it turns out, is, actually, right. is actually a flaw. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's a long story, but I want to have you briefly recount the the accident that you and your wife got into and how you recognized in that moment, perhaps, that you were the most annoying person on earth. <laughs> <laughs> An early indicator of my yes. irritatingness, yes. Uh, so 2005, my wife gets into a very, very slow-moving fender bender, uh, and there happened to be a police officer nearby who looked over the damage and said, I don't see anything. They exchanged numbers. They went on their way, and then we got a claim in the mail for an entirely new Fender, which was like $836. And this was during, literally during Hurricane Katrina. It was the day that Katrina hit New Orleans. And I, we had just been to New Orleans and I had sort of fallen in love with the city and was so distraught. And my, a very good friend of mine lived there and he had had to like evacuate his family. And there was just a lot of like, I was kind of just in a riled up mood. And I went and looked at the guy's fender, and if you strained very, very hard, you could see a very <laughs> tiny little crease. And I said, you know, I think this is ridiculous, uh, frankly. And I'm not a confrontational person. It took a lot for me to do this. I said, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, this is why insurance rates are so high. And and I, it just I, this seems like a silly thing to cost $836. So how about this? I will give that amount of money to the Hurricane Katrina Relief Fund. And we'll call it even like you don't fix your car or you pay for it yourself. And this money goes to a better thing than your fender. And and there's our solution. (laughs) And then I and he said, I'll think about it. And then he and then I went and told my friends and I was working at the office at the time. And they all started pledging more and more money. Like, I'll give 100 (laughs) bucks. I'll give 50 bucks, whatever. Soon it was like we had three thousand dollars pledged if this guy wouldn't fix his fender, (laughs) which is so weird. 
Then I made a blog and soon it was $10,000 and then $25,000. And I was getting media requests and I was like, I was so sure I was right. That was what I really remember about the whole story is I was 100% sure that I was on the right side of history. And then I went home that one night, it was like two days later, and I was telling my wife, like, good morning, America wants to interview me or whatever. (laughs) And she looked at me and I looked at her and suddenly she was like, this is wrong. And I was like, yeah, it is. And I don't know why. Why is it wrong? And she was like, I don't know. But we, our hearts sank at exactly the same moment and we didn't know why. And that was really when I became actually tangibly interested in moral philosophy because I didn't know what to do. So I just started reading moral philosophy and trying to figure <laughs> out why what I was doing was making me sick to my stomach. And I talked to a bunch of professors and I read a bunch of stuff and eventually I realized the 28 different reasons why what I was doing was entirely unfair and unreasonable. I called the guy. I said, the ch- I've sent you the check. It's in the mail. He, I told him the whole story. Uh, I sent him the check. He said, well, maybe I'll donate some of it to the Red Cross. And I said, that would be great, but you're under no moral <laughs> obligation to do that. And and then it, but it sort of, it consumed me. This This thing, this thing that happened took over my life, my mental life, my emotional life for a very long time. And everyone, you want to talk about annoying. Literally, I remember being at a wedding like a month later and wa- <laughs> like the, everyone's happy and celebrating and I've grabbed this, my friend Dave, and I'm like, okay, and then this happened and then this happened and then he did this. Like, help, help, help me work this out. Yeah. And it just, it became the moment that I thought like, you know, if I had been better prepared, if I knew this stuff before, I had gotten into that accident. I never in a million years would have dragged this guy through this terrible thing because I would have understood that what I was doing was fundamentally unfair for a number of different reasons. And it made me want to essentially educate myself so that I didn't screw up anything that badly ever again. Mm. So that's my like moral philosophy origin story. That's wild. And it was essentially, I mean, there's a a number of reasons. One of them is that it's not up to you whether someone or else, someone else behaves in a way that you, you wish that they would, you could try your hardest, but more so it was what aboutism. They were unrelated, but because you were fired up about Katrina, you made his bumper about Right. About something it had nothing to do with. Right. Like he didn't he doesn't set the price for a new bumper, right? <laughs> right. He didn't do that. He right. he and what about And also it, the, you don't care about cars. I have I've have zero and interest in cars. Maybe he really stuff. did and it really bothered him that and there was you know something what? on his bumper. I wouldn't I'll, get it fixed. I'd be like who cares? Who but. cares? But I'll tell you w- one of the key moments was he said to me, "You know, I have kids and they they just make a mess. They ruin everything. And the one thing that I have that I keep the way I want it to Mm. is my car. Now, at the time, I didn't have kids. I do now. And boy, (laughs) does that explanation make a lot of sense to me. Right. So like I didn't I couldn't access his state of mind. I imposed my own on him. Mm. The thing I think is the most relevant, though, for our modern world is the whataboutism, because you see that every day on Twitter, on the internet, anywhere you look, you will see a number of people who are, who is like, you know, someone will say something about Ben Roethlisberger. And, you know, Diana Moskovitz wrote a really great piece, I thought about Ben Roethlisberger. And then if you look in the comments, it'll be like, well, what about Kareem Hunt? And what about Tyreek Hill? What and it's about like, Kobe? I got what, what about, about Kobe, Kobe of every course. time I've said something about Ben. I'm like, right. well, here's the story I wrote about him as well. Right. Burnt. <laughs> but, even, but even so, you shouldn't Doesn't have matter. to do yeah. that because yeah. the point of the whole thing is we are not talking about that person right now. We're talking about right. this person. That is, it's a very, um, it's among the most common crutches that people use in any kind of argument is 
well, here's a different bad thing over here that's also bad, and so yeah. you can't say that that thing is bad. Right. Or and why would you give to an animal rescue when children are starving? Well, right. no one told me I had to pick one. So here's yeah, all the things I care about. Exactly. And also, <laughs> yeah. I didn't, and and th- that has nothing to do, that other thing has nothing to do with the thing that I am negotiating right now. Right. And so we'll get to that in a second. Just yeah. hang on. <laughs> but But I was literally saying to this guy, you know, how dare you care about this thing when there's a hurricane? And that has that's an absurd way to mm-hmm. behave. And I didn't it didn't occur to me at the time because I, I went into that particular negotiation with another human being with no armor and no preparation and no understanding of what I was doing. And so I really felt at the on the other side of that. I ought to be smarter than this. I ought to be better than this. And so I set about to kind of trying to teach myself how to not royally screw something up as badly as I did. <laughs> so I, I'm really enjoying the book so far because I love learning and I love being you know educated on this stuff as well. But I'm only halfway through, I'll be honest. Uh, most of my recent guests have written books. It's been, it's been, I've, <laughs> I, I keep, I've like picking too many people where every <laughs> single one I have to read. I'm like Lindsay Vaughn's book and Kendall Coyd's book. And that. So um, I'm halfway through, but I have gotten through you introducing the big three of, you know, Western moral philosophy. And I'm, right. I'm intrigued and I want to give people a teaser, not one that will um, give away all the secrets of, <laughs> of thousands of years that are actually documented in print that people could already hear about, um, but just a teaser. And it does feel like Aristotle's virtue ethics feels the most right. It trusts us more and mm-hmm. context really matters. What's your big takeaway for people on the first of the three, which is the virtue ethics? Virtue ethics to me is the most inviting, I think, and the most forgiving because the, the most of the other people I talk about in the book, the question they're asking is, what should I do? If I'm in a situation, what should I do? What is the right action? And what Aristotle is asking is, what kind of person should I be? And then he trusts, essentially, that if you become a good person in the way he thinks of a good person, then you will do good things. But let's focus on who we are, not what we do. So basically, his theory is there's all these different qualities that you want in people. There's kindness and generosity and magnanimity and courage and whatever. And your job is to find the exact right amount of each of those qualities. So when you do something that is sort of courageous you think was I courageous enough or could I have been more courageous or was I too courageous which means I was rash and and irresponsible and you just it's a lifetime process of modulation where you're trying to find the mean the exact middle awesome dead solid perfect spot for each of these qualities and what I like about it is it feels very humanistic to me because he's basically saying you're going to always get it wrong, right? You, you, you're going to, it's not a, there is no person who like the first time they try to be courageous has exactly the right amount of courage. <laughs> like you're going to, it's like it's trial and error and you just get closer and closer and closer. And I find that to be the most humanistic and sort of inviting of the theories because it seems to allow for a little bit of screw up along the way. In fact, a lot of it. And it all, and also because like, if you get too so his, his courage is one of the examples he uses right and he says if you're too courageous as a soldier you're going to charge over a hill by yourself and take on the whole <laughs> army and get killed if you're not if you're way too, uh, not courageous enough you're going to flee you're going to abandon your army right so what's great about it to me is what he's saying is if you get to a point where you're like feeling too rash and too courageous, you need to be a little more cowardly. Like mm-hmm. being a little more cowardly can be good. 
And if you're too generous, you need to be a little stingier because that's what drags you back toward the middle. So he's he's basically saying like these vices, these things at the at the far ends of the spectrum are good if you're stirring them into the equation in the right amount to keep you from tilting one way or the other. I just find that very inviting and lovely, and it makes me feel like it's achievable or something. Like some of the other guys, that, and they're mostly guys that I talk about, are way less forgiving. And it's right. sort of like, do the right thing or you're a failure, and I will scream at you in <laughs> German. And Well, we'll get to him. Yeah. We'll get, but so the thing about the Aristotle virtue ethics is they also seem to work in both directions, which the other two don't always, which is to say that if you seek out the virtues and then you do them, you will become more virtuous. And if mm-hmm. you do them, if you if you do the virtues, then you're seeking out them and right. doing. So it's like the process and the result yeah. both contribute to you being great. I, and, yes, and exactly. Seeking yeah. that that thriving or that happiness. It he even essentially says that the process of getting closer and closer to the right amount of one virtue helps you get to the right amount of another virtue, which then helps you get to the, mm-hmm. like becoming more Mag- magnanimous helps you become more generous, which helps you become more courageous, all that sort of stuff. So it is, it's a journey is the destination philosophy, but also like when you reach those destinations, they help you in your journey. It's a, it is like a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. Every show I do a word of the week, and I was cracking up at one of the footnotes in your book about eudaimonia. Oh. Because... <laughs> Uh, that was Plato and Aristotle believed that the purpose of life sor- sort of is uh, the search for happiness as an end to itself and, mm-hmm. and thriving um, for no other purpose other than for, for the purpose of being happy and thriving. And it was called eudemi- eudemonia. Or eudemonia. Eud- eudemonia. Yeah. yeah, there's like yeah. multiple ways. But I recorded it for a full, the entire script I'd written as eudonomia. <laughs> and then I went back and go, shit. And I got to send you a whole separate file where I say the word right. And like the beginning is just me saying it 10 times and being like, that's not it. And then listening to the person on the computer say, you daimonia, and being like, ah. So your little footnote about how you never use it because you don't know how to say it. I don't know how to say it. Nobody does. Yeah. You just say happiness. Well, Greek people who speak Greek do, <laughs> yes. I guess. But it's either eudaimonia or eudaimonia or eudaimonia yeah. or yeah. I, I, I don't know. Just say eudaimonia. flourishing or just yeah. say happiness. It's easier. Yeah. Yes. Uh, at the SPNW Summit, I was so thrilled, though, because we had um, we had the spelling bee champ, Zai era avant-garde and oh whoa yeah we had her on stage with us and they had me and julie foudy come up and do an impromptu spelling beer where we had to spell like shashevsky and stuff <laughs> and then they gave her eudaimonia and everyone was like what what and i was like oh that's like plato's idea and everyone's like wow you're so smart i was like yes um still can't say it though we'll get right back to the interview but first what's your favorite word phantasmagoric Phantasmagoric. It's a beautiful word. It means having a fantastic or deceptive appearance as something in a dream or created by the imagination, having the appearance of an optical illusion, especially one produced by a magic lantern, or changing or shifting as a scene made up of many elements. Um, It it comes from the word phantasmagoria, a fantastic series or medley of elusive or terrifying figures or images from 1802. It was the name of a magic lantern exhibition brought to London by a 
Parisian showman. And um, it the word phantasmagoria comes from the French phantasmagory, which is said to have been coined just a year before that by a French dramatist to mean a crowd of phantoms. And, and the root is the Greek phantasma image, phantom apparition. Um, I dare say I've never used the word phantasmagoric or phantasmagoria. And now I must remedy that immediately. I must find something to describe as having a fantastic or deceptive appearance as if created by the imagination. Uh, it's a good one. Speaking of great words, you're going to learn today. So in keeping with today's podcast and Mike's book, the word of the week is scrupulous. Having scruples or moral or ethical standards, having or showing a strict regard for what one considers right, principled, also painstaking, careful, exact. So this is not only appropriate for today, but it also has an amazing etymology. I love when you can trace back uh, to really specific things that that ended up in, in the creation of a word. So scrupulous and its close relative scruple, which means an ethical consideration or principle, come from the Latin noun scrupulous, which is a diminutive of scrupus. And scrupus means a sharp stone. So scrupulous means a small, sharp stone. And... Um, Scrupus had its literal meaning uh, of the stone, but eventually also came to be used with the sort of metaphorical meaning of a source of anxiety or uneasiness, the way a sharp pebble in your shoe uh, would be a source of anxiety with, with, with a little bit of pain in there. So the adjective scrupulous entered the language and it meant principled, but now means painstaking or careful. You know, like you're walking with a sharp pebble in your shoe that would make you more careful and exact. How wonderful is that? I love it. Okay, so in a sentence, even a scrupulous examination of the play of Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen in the Bills Chiefs playoff game wouldn't expose areas of potential improvement. They were as close to perfection as it gets. Now let's get back to the interview. So let's get to utilitarianism and consequentialism, because the example you give in the book that's really great for this is the idea of vaccines and when to mm -hmm. distribute them to the oldest and the sickest. So that's a great example of when that works, right? Yes. Utilitarianism, which is basically like do more good than bad. And that's the, the right thing to do is any is the thing that does the most good and the least bad. And there's a there's more to it than that. But it's about maximizing happiness and pleasure and minimizing pain and suffering, essentially. So you utilitarianism leads you if you follow it to some very gnarly and weird places that are not that fun to contemplate. But one place it works really well is enormous, massive scale things like how do we get vaccines to the most number of people to help everyone who's suffering from the same potential problem? Because what you do is you say, okay, we have these first thousand doses. Who gets them? Well, it, we could give them to a thousand random people. We could give them to a thousand NBA players and <laughs> high, like high, high performance athletes who are young and healthy. Or we could give them to a thousand 80 year olds with uh, autoimmune deficiencies who were much more likely to suffer the ill effects of the disease that we're trying to cure than than LeBron James. And so they each dose of the vaccine, if you if you go from like, well, who's the most vulnerable here is maximally valuable and maximally efficient in creating happiness and minimizing suffering. So 
even though when you get really deep into the weeds or even not that deep into the weeds on utilitarianism, you can come to some very unpleasant conclusions, which like you would say, it's okay to kill one innocent person if you're saving five other people's lives. Well, that kind of feels wrong. So you can get into these gnarly places. But when it comes to just maximizing good with something like a vaccine or um, or just distributing food to hurricane victims or anything, you start with the people who are in the greatest need because each time you do that, it maximizes the happiness of the person who's receiving it. So there, you know, all of the theories that I talk about in the book, there are moments where you're like, oh, this is the right answer here. Like yeah. we follow this one. And that's why it's what's great and also incredibly frustrating about philosophy is that <laughs> the second you think you have it figured out, you're like, well, it doesn't work over here. We got to mm-hmm. figure out some new philosophy to work to use. And there situation. are lots of versions of the trolley problem in your book that exhibit how some work and some don't. Um, one thing I thought of when I was thinking about consequentialism is the idea that impact does not equal intent is a nice way to make yourself feel better if your intent was good, but your impact was bad. But unfortunately, we have to reconcile that honestly. If we unintentionally have a very severe impact on other people, then we need to be able to say, that was not my intent, but that doesn't matter. I have still created this bad mm-hmm. impact, and I have to either apologize or or fix the situation instead of just going, well, I meant to do well. I'm sorry all these bad things happened because of it, um, which feels like maybe an issue with, with consequentialism and utilitarianism. And the other one is, you know, the idea to do something because it will create the most happiness is the most slippery slope impossible way to decide things. This is something I talked about with an ex-boyfriend who is very spiritual, which I'm not. And I kind of said he was trying to explain heaven to me. Just a simple Sunday conversation. Yeah, easy. Yeah. And I was like, and this is the exact example I used because I'm a f-ing lunatic. I was like, <laughs> all right, but like. What if my heaven is different? Like, in my heaven, I would be hanging out with Michael Jordan all the time. But I'm guessing in Michael Jordan's heaven, he wouldn't be hanging out with me. Or like, what if you really liked a friend of yours and you wanted them to be in heaven with you? And they were like, oh, God, I was faking nice to this person all of life. And now they're in the afterlife, too. Like, everybody's idea of happiness is different. And the idea that you could make your decisions based on what would create happiness is like, like you like you said in the book, some people hate ice cream and cake. We can't right. we can't account for those people. Who's whose happiness are we talking about? Yeah. That's that's the one of the problems. By the way, based on stories I have heard you tell about trying to meet various <laughs> members of the Chicago Bulls, I think we can pretty much guarantee that their heaven would not be hanging yeah, out with no. you behind are, are a there, behind are there a velvet restraining rope. Orders in heaven? <laughs> Yeah, whose happiness is the is the immediate question you get to, right? Is like how do we define that? Like what what is what makes one person happy will make someone else deeply sad. Like the example I give in the book is is if you are made happy by eating Hawaiian pizza, then you and I have a very different idea of happiness because I find Hawaiian pizza to be among the most disgusting and unnecessary <laughs> foods that exist. So you, it's very difficult to take that really broad brush and say, we're just going to try to maximize happiness because different people are made happy or sad by different mm-hmm. things. Now, there are some ways, again, and this is why utilitarianism works really well sometimes. You know what? One thing it makes almost everyone happy is being alive and not dead. <laughs> so when you're distributing a vaccine, you you don't have to worry about all of the little vagaries or vicissitudes of each individual person. You can just say, this is a binary thing. This is a disease that makes you sick. And no well, one likes being sick. What if they're anti-vax? What would they have told them? Well, that's so there's a problem, right? It's you can't force someone to be happy, right? You can you can only say 
I have the ability to remove a serious threat from people's lives. So I am going to start with the people most in need, and I'm going to offer them this opportunity. If they say no because they're either masochistic or they have a political belief that is stopping them from being happy or something— <laughs> Well, okay, but that doesn't that doesn't matter because you have taken the approach that is intended to maximize the happiness in this very binary up down right. yes no alive dead kind of a kind of a decision. Yeah. But when you get into anything else, when you get into any kind of nuanced discussion about action and what you're going to do and what situation and what will result from it, then you're dealing with the individual happinesses and sadnesses and pains and pleasures of a lot of very specific people with specific worldviews and that that's where it can get really tricky and hard to use utilitarianism there is a lot of gray area there it's, a, it's sort of like you said a points system in the book that is very hard to keep track of yeah. especially in the moment if you want more rigidity you can go to <laughs> deontology am i saying that's that right? right you are um tell us a little bit about that and why it's not nearly as friendly and trusting as aristotle's view so deontology is um, Immanuel Kant's thing. He was a, a Prussian uh, philosopher from 18th century Germany. And he, um, he, his thing is kind of lovely in a weird way because what he said was like, look, human beings have this unique ability. We have these giant brains and we can use reason and logic and we can think about things and analyze the world in a way that animals cannot, right? And so any system of morals or ethics, he thought, has to be one that comes from this thing that makes us special, which is our ability to reason. And so what we're going to take out of the equation is emotion. We're going to remove happiness and sadness and pain and and um, and jealousy and all of those sort of base emotions that like literally like bears and hedgehogs can feel happiness or sadness or whatever. So if a bear or a hedgehog can can we'll make a decision based on something we're not going to use that we're going to use reason and logic <laughs> so his thing is there is a right thing to do and a wrong thing to do in every situation and when you encounter a decision you essentially press pause you you enter a solitary meditation zone and what you say is okay what is the correct action and how and the correct action for him is the action that you could will that it would become a universal law. Basically, the thing when you come up with an idea, you're going to say like what if everyone did this? And if everyone doing it makes the world better, then it's okay. And if everyone doing it makes the world ridiculous or incomprehensible or it loses all meaning, then you can't do it. So you have to be able to universalize whatever it is you're going to do. So, his example should you lie, right? Should you lie and and um, at any moment in your life? His answer is no, because now let's imagine everybody is lying. If everybody could lie, then you would walk around knowing that at any given moment, anyone that you're talking to might be lying to you. Mm -hmm. And so communication would cease to have any meaning because you could never rely on anybody telling you the truth, and then the whole world would kind of fall apart. So his conclusion is you can never lie to anyone for any reason ever, including, <laughs> by the way, if you're at home with your brother and a murderer shows up and says, hey, I'm, I want to murder your brother. Is he around? Have you seen him? Kant literally says you're not allowed to say, no, I haven't seen him. I don't know where he is. That's, which is, that's how intense this dude was. A little he was a very, too strict. He's yes. a very intense dude. And what he does say you can do is something like, you know, I, you know a couple of days ago, I, I know he said he, he might go to St. Louis or 
you know, on Tuesdays, he likes to go to the park and walk around. Like, you can tell him a true thing that isn't quite the whole truth, but you're not allowed to say, I don't know where he is. He's not in my house. So that's Kant in a nutshell. It's He's the most all or nothing, like, right answer, wrong answer, hardcore of all of the theories. And there are times when his theory is really useful. I got to say, there are times when you're like, look, <laughs> this is a... This is a black and white moral issue. You cannot do this because if everybody did this, the world would be ridiculous. Right. It's very helpful as a parent, I will say. Kant is very good if you're a parent <laughs> where you can <laughs> say to your kid, no, you can't do that because imagine if everybody did that, how crazy the world would be. Like that is an argument that works with children sometimes. So it's just that the rigidity is what feels um, like I don't want n under normal circumstances I find it difficult to follow a philosopher who tells me I'm not allowed to lie to a murderer who's trying to murder right. my brother. Like, it's <laughs> right, just hard right, to get right. on board He's a little with strict. that guy. Yeah. 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 So one of the people I love uh, in the early part of this book is, of course, the, the, the woman who arrives to tell us all something smart. I, I can't remember her name right now, <laughs> but she, she essentially looks at all these other philosophers and she says, this is all well and good, and it's nice to talk about magnanimity and courage and whatever, but we should recognize that the greatest sin of all the moral failings is cruelty to yeah. Yes, Judith Sklar, yeah. I, I think that that's true. And if we prioritize that over everything else, it sort of helps us create decisions and make decisions in other places. Does it is it cruel to other things and people? So I'm curious how you, understanding your, your philosophies and, and the things you've decided based on all of your readings, how do you view stuff like eating animals and how we treat them in farms and such? It's a great question. Um, it should also be noted that the probably the greatest contributions to the world of animal rights were made in the, in recent time by Peter Singer, who's a utilitarian. So it's not mm. just um, Judith uh, Sklar is her name, who wrote that, um, wrote that piece about cruelty. Um, but I find it a very compelling argument. I became a vegetarian now about a decade ago, in part partly for moral reasons, partly for health reasons, but partly for moral reasons, because I just looked around and thought, like, I don't think it's okay to do this. Like, I just Somehow don't... I, I knew you were going to say that. I was like, I yeah. don't know whether he is, but I feel like it's going to be really hard for him if I ask this question. <laughs> it's going to make him really sad because he's no, like always I, wanting to be good. It doesn't make me sad. Um, it, it, it does make me a little bit sad that I didn't come to this conclusion sooner. But yeah, me too. I just kind of stopped thinking of it as something that was okay to do. And I, part of that was like reading books like Fast Food Nation um, and some Michael Pollan books where that describe the nature of the food system in this country and in the world, which isn't just we need to food so we have places where we process food, but is it's basically treating the animals as if they have no as if they're not as if they're not living creatures. They right. there's a an utter lack of care and respect with the way that most animals are treated and and killed. And so I was like, yeah, I I just got to that point where I sort of felt like I I think this is a bummer. I love chicken, mm -hmm. I love steak, I love hamburgers, but I don't think it's okay to eat them anymore. And so I stopped. So yeah, it's it's hard, man. It's a it's a and I I you know I don't know that this is a decision that everyone even the people who believe what I'm saying and what you're agreeing to would say is necessary. Um, but I kind of came to the conclusion that it was to, that it's necessary to stop. Right. I came to the conclusion it was, and I did it and I don't regret it. For, for me as well. It's like, I always say, I believe in this circle of life, but we're not getting, we're not doing it fairly. 
<laughs> you know, we're we're not playing fair. Um, yeah. And and then we're causing undue cruelty for the entirety of some something's life, not just when it's killed for for, for right. purpose. Right. Yes, Which I'm. Is, I am very susceptible to arguments that amount to like, if we could make this better, it would be more okay. I think that's right. true. And I and I, you know, then you get into this weird thing where you. People, you know, California passed laws about chickens and how they have to have a certain number of square feet of space to exist mm-hmm. and walk around, and and they ha- can be, they can have time to just be chickens for a while. And I think that's good that we should all do that. That's a step in the right direction. But I also don't know how effective it is, what right. what it really looks like in practice. I don't, you know, there are exposés all the time of right. of factory farms that make you think like, boy, that doesn't look a whole lot better than what it used to be. I. It's it's hard, uh, but I am I am sympathetic to the idea that there is a there is a version of meat eating that is humane and is okay, and that that version is just the version that cannot feed eight billion people. Like the world has gotten too big, and the amount yeah. of beef and chicken that we eat is too way too high for for that process to. It worked in the 17th century, and it right. doesn't really work now. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Okay, this is a question that I have asked a psychologist and a neuroscientist, and the psychologist told me I should ask a philosopher. So you're gonna hmm. you're gonna fill well, in. I'll, I'll of, pretend I'm a philosopher. For all the, <laughs> well, you just wrote a book about it, so we're supposed to believe that you're Great. qualified enough. I was thinking about this with a former president whose name I will not say, and the idea of narcissism or any quality wherein you don't seem to be aware even if people continue telling you that your behavior is bad or the way you do things and see things and treat people as bad, that that you're sort of stuck within the neuroses of the brain that you were given. And it mm-hmm. had me thinking about something like pedophiles. We consider them monsters. We know what they do is wrong, but we treat them very differently than people with other mental disorders. We have empathy for people who are bipolar or schizophrenic. And because the victims in pedophilia are so specific and so horrific, we sort of just decide they're awful, terrible, put them away forever. And yet they're still at the mercy of the brain and the, psych- and the, and the makeup that they were given, right? So is your personality the same as your brain? Because if you're given a brain that is narcissistic or pedophilia or whatever else, and then you are told, here's all the ways that you're wrong in what you're doing and thinking. And here's all the ways you could be better if you changed. And if you went to therapy for this, and if we told you about this, and if we told you the reaction and the results of what you're doing are wrong, and then you can't change. Are you, are you a bad person? Because you do not have 
the personality and the means to change? Or are you only working with a brain that would allow you to react to someone telling you to change and then choose to follow that and change? That's not very well said, but I hope you get what because it's kind of an idea of free will. Are we yeah. ever really in charge of who we are and the choices we make and whether we're good people and we become good or become better? Or are we always limited by whether or not the actual makeup of our brain will let us choose the right things and choose to be better and evolve and change? Well, there's about 30 to 40 distinct ideas in that question. <laughs> so I'm not exactly Maybe sure. Maybe that's why everyone's a little <laughs> thrown by it. I haven't gotten a straight answer. Um, I can't believe you and... Uh, I assume Chester A. Arthur had this deep conversation. Um, so, look, th th there are really a lot of different ideas in there. Among them, you have to draw lines of distinction here between who we are as people in a sort of abstract way, what it means in terms of whether we have free will or whether things are determined, are we our personalities or our personalities separate from our souls, a bunch of that stuff. And then there is, how do we function as a society? How do we set rules and laws and boundaries meant to protect people and keep people safe? And what do we, how do we, how do we define as a society what is allowable behavior and non-allowable behavior? What is, what is behavior that we can tolerate or that needs to be punished for a certain amount of time and then you get a second chance? Like, you're bringing in a lot of questions here about the way that we treat criminality in this country, the way that we treat rehabilitation as a concept. You're also bringing in cruelty, what Judith uh, Sklar wrote about, right? Which is part of her problem with cruelty was that people are arrested for crimes and then put into prisons where their surroundings are so much more cruel than the crime they committed. Right. Her example being in Les Mis, stealing a loaf of bread and then serving <laughs> 20 years in prison. Right. And that there's a, there's an, there's a, something's out of whack there, right? Where the, the way that we treat very minor offenses can lead to an impossibly high levels of cruelty. You're almost flipping it now and saying when you commit a crime that can irreversibly damage the life of another person, mm -hmm. how do we treat the person who committed that crime, even if we understand that the reason that that person with a different chemical balance in his or her brain would not have committed that crime? Like, is that something you should even factor in or should you just say, sorry, you committed this crime. There's nothing we can do about it. You're going to jail for the rest of your life. There's a million ideas there. Um, I, I think that trying to sort of bundle them all together, I think I would only say that, that there are, I would say a couple of things. There is a famous criminal defense attorney um, who deals almost exclusively with people on death row whose motto is people are better than the worst thing they ever did. Or people are more than the worst thing they ever did, right? So I think that in the, in an attempt to like extend empathy as far as we possibly can, we should try to remember all the time that people are more than the worst thing they ever did. And that goes for people who committed murders in cold blood or people who, who abused a minor, like that doesn't mean that those people get off scot-free, that we get that they get the same rights and freedoms that everybody else gets. It just means that they aren't only that. There is something else there that deserves some thought and some some attention. Right. And that could mean psychologically, it could mean I mean, those the people who commit those crimes, there do have to be rules and laws and you have to sort of have some kind of you have to keep people in our society safe from people right. who have those tendencies. But it also means that the way we treat them once we have doled out the correct punishment, assuming for a second the legal justice system 
does its job <laughs> that you that maybe it would be of benefit to a lot of people to not say this is the only thing that matters about this person maybe that person has more to offer or has a life that is worth some amount of dignity or care or respect or something like that so i think it's a great answer but i want to bring you back to the original question even though there were a million questions and thoughts within it okay do you then think that our personality is the same as our brain no i don't i think that our personality is our brain plus our upbringing plus our surroundings plus our friends plus our education plus any number of events, good and bad, that have befallen us. I think context matters a whole lot in our personality. I think our brain sets us on a certain path, like it did with me and the idea of being a dutiful person. But I don't think my personality is explained by saying he's a dutiful person. I think my personality has been affected by the comedy writers I've spe spent endless n numbers of hours with over the years, as much as it is my original orientation. It's, it's nature and nurture. And I think that thinking of your personality and your brain as the same thing is probably a mistake because it, it, that's limiting to me. Like, mm -hmm. I think that if you say your brain is your personality, you're basically saying, well, you're your your life is determined by the chemical makeup of your genetic engineering end of story and i don't think that's true i think people can go down different paths better paths newer paths more interesting paths because of how personality can develop based on who you spend your time with and what books you read and what movies you see and everything else I completely agree. I think I use it occasionally for empathy in order to look at somebody who I wish would behave differently because of the amount of times they've been told to behave differently or the chances they've been given or the cues they've been given. And I think to myself, well, maybe they don't have the capacity to so easily desire being better or different. And right. so that's why they continue to be that way, despite it causing them all sorts of shame and and jobs lost and everything else. Yeah. Whereas there are those of us, you and I, for instance, who like care so much about being better and learning how to be better and then doing those things that that's part of our wiring is to be like that. And sometimes mm -hmm. it's easier to be nice to someone who's insufferable if you just tell yourself, well, perhaps they aren't wired to receive the info. We continue to give them about how insufferable they are. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and also, by the way, to acknowledge in the search for empathy that you just that other people are fundamentally unknowable to you, mm -hmm. that it's hard enough to know yourself without, you cannot access them. You don't know what they've been through in their life. You don't know how they're wired. You don't know what happened to them when they were seven or 15 or 28. You just, you can't possibly know the mind or the personality of another person. So this is the, this is a David Foster Wallace thing. This is, um, this is why I knew we'd His, get here. Yeah. God, I, I knew we couldn't make it a whole pod without you. Well, it's, it is though. <laughs> like it's, it's, it is what he was saying. He was in, in that speech at Kenyon. He was basically saying like, he see, he's at a supermarket and he sees a person in a giant SUV and he's like, how could a person drive that car? The environment is dying. And then he sees that person cut in line and the, with more than 12 items and the 12 items are fewer line. And it's like, you jerk. And then mm -hmm. he thinks, well, maybe that person is driving that car because that person got into a terrible car accident and that car makes that person feel safe. And it, yeah. it's like an emotional thing. And maybe yeah. that person who cut in line needs to get home and take care of her sick mom and so, so on and so forth. Now, are those things true? Probably not. But he, the, the idea of, of reaching for that understanding, yeah. of trying, of, of, of playing that game and saying, I don't know that person. I shouldn't draw conclusions about that person because I don't know that person. That is a good game to play. And I think it can be of great use. 
I do that a lot. I do that when someone's being awful. Is who knows what happened right before they got here? Man, right. they must be something terrible must have happened if they're this mad about the size of their frozen yogurt. And then the person Whatever. leans out, leans out the, their car and flips you off, and then yeah. <laughs> smoking a That's cigar a and story. throws it at another it's car. A different, and... different story. Um, <laughs> well, I thank you for uh, for engaging with me on that. It's a very it's a very strange question, and I, I don't know why I'm so stuck on it, but I think it's fascinating. I mean, it, look, these are great questions to ask. This is what's fun about philosophy is you spend all of your time asking questions like this right. and talking about them with other smart people and that is why I love it. And then what's the answer that you give at the end of every discussion? Keep trying? No, I believe it was a it was another footnote something like and the oh, professor oh, oh, would oh. ask that you I'll all I'll leave uh, that to the reader. Yeah, that's a yes. thing philosophy professors do all the time is they lob a huge question out there and they go like oh, the conclusions to this you can determine on your own. And it's just a it's just like a cheap trick where they pass the buck and don't actually have to answer the question they're asking. Uh. Well, since you've already done the Spanish Inquisition, we will end with a speed round of questions that are the opposite of the one I just asked, which was thoughtful and interesting. And instead, we will engage you, the king of morals and ethics, in a game of (laughs) Would You Rather. Great. Bring it on. Number one. Would you rather play loud music three hours past curfew in a crowded neighborhood or use a carpool lane for one hour alone in your car? Oh God! Uh, carpool lane. The loud music thing is is um, <laughs> you're you are you're radiating irritation <laughs> outward from your house. You know what I mean? Like it, you're affecting it's like, many others. Yeah, yes. the carpool lane is like people will glance at you and they'll give you side eye and they'll flip you off, but like you're not actively making their lives worse mm-hmm. after you pass them. As soon as you're gone, you're out of you're outside yes. out of mind. The loud music thing is more irritating, I think. For good more answer, people. good answer. Okay. Would you rather lie to friends and family about donating to the Salvation Army or take $50 out of a Salvation Army (laughs) coffer? I'm not stealing money from anybody. The other one. No, this I is would like rather, the trolley problem. I would rather lie. I'm not going to, like, stealing, <laughs> but taking money away from a charity is so much worse than lying about giving to one. <laughs> okay. People will need to read the book, perhaps, to understand this one. But would you rather die of St. Anthony's fire <laughs> or have your auto icon displayed in the Harvard Student Center? <laughs> okay, briefly, John Stuart Mill uh, 19th century philosopher died of a disease called St. Anthony's fire, which like your skin like explodes in these bright red, embarrassing, horrifying rashes. And it's apparently extremely And then painful. you die of it somehow. And That's you the die. worst part. Well, like, you a did rash back sounds then. terrible, but uh, you then did you back die? then. I, I don't think you would die now, but let's say <laughs> I did. Yes. Or so your auto icon, Jeremy Bentham, another, an 18th century, 19th century philosopher, uh, when he died, he was a very interesting gentleman. And he asked that his body essentially be like preserved and dressed in his old clothes and his like skeleton. And then he wanted his head preserved and they tried and it didn't work. So they made a wax head, put it on his skeleton, dressed him in one of his own suits and put him on display in a university in England. So in the student center, in the student center, not like a random place where you have to go looking for him. Well, they kept him in a closet for a long time because they were like, this is horrifying. So let's just put him in the closet. It was really hard to bring him in and out of the closet because the feet would move. Exactly. It was a nightmare. (laughs) I I think that, uh, I guess 
look, you. Uh, I'm going to assume that if I'm dying of St. Anthony's fire, I'm I'm old and I've lived a good life, and I'll pick that because I I don't want to make people in perpetuity look at my weird skeleton wearing like a Red Sox hoodie for, for the next like 250 With years. With a wax head, because what if yeah. it's not even like flattering? Yeah, I, I think that's probably worse. Uh, I'll I'll pick I'll I'll pick St. Anthony's fire and hope that it's a quick and relatively painless fair, death. Fair. Yeah. I also I'd like a look at my skeleton. Am I big boned or would it make me look svelte? <laughs> you know, I just yeah. want to know. Well, that's the thing. If I they, might if they finally really, achieve a beauty standard if, if people they really, are admiring my skeleton. If they like really dressed us up well and made us look yeah. hot, maybe yeah. I don't know, maybe you go that way. You have, I might you have, have a super hot skeleton. Nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> I might be the f- Giselle of skeletons. You might I have give people it a shot at least. 200 years from now going like, Jesus, look at her. Oh, yeah. Man, oh, wow. Man. She must subtle. have been a looker. Look at the look at the collarbone. Look at the, look at the, look the clavicle at the tibia on, on her. <laughs> I have often told I have great tibias. Mm. It's a, you're blessed. You're blessed, genetically blessed with excellent tibias. Uh, thank you, Mike, for being the first three timer. Thank you for writing this book. It's so far fascinating. I wish I could have finished it before this, but um, I still have to watch Brooklyn Nine Nine and Rutherford <laughs> Falls, and you know, it's just too much content. Uh, I'm and truly, then, and then... I'm, I'm honored to be your first three time guest, and I will work on an elaborate initiation ceremony for whoever is next, and we'll Perfect. we'll have a whole I can't thing. Wait, it'll be great. I can't wait. I hope it's someone really awkward that you wouldn't get along with. So you're like, oh, this, this former is President Chester A. Arthur. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. My pleasure. That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. Okay, so this is a place for rants, raves, for me to tell you something to watch, listen to, read, whatever's on my mind. Uh, First, I finally got to watch the movie Changing the Game, and I highly recommend it, especially if you've seen some of the stories lately about the the transgender UPenn swimmer that's creating an investigation into, into rules and is causing a lot of folks to have conversations about transgender athletes, once again, often not inspired or aided by intelligence, research, education, and understanding a specificity of the humanity and the, and, and the qualities of the people that are competing and involved in the issue. And I think Changing the Game, which is a documentary that focuses on a couple different young transgender athletes, um, reminds us of the purposes of sport, reminds us of the specificity and humanity of the people involved, and allows us to have these conversations from a from a more um, human and a more educated place. Uh, there's a lot of great reading. My own podcast that I did a couple months ago, maybe it was a year now, um, I think is another good place. But Changing the Game, documentary, you guys should watch it. Also, a reminder to email me if you want to be part of the do crew slash list crew still deciding on the name um if you don't know what i'm talking about the january 4th episode of this podcast entitled the happiness project go listen to that learn about your assignment as listeners and then email me sarah.c.spain at espn.com more on that including what inspired the do crew what i'm doing and which of you are going to be a part of it is coming up next week don't forget you could always tweet me at sarah spain if you have guest suggestions dilemmas questions uh you should always go to the itunes or podcast app follow subscribe to that's what she said with sarah spain rate it five stars please leave me a review thank you as always for uh for lasting about an hour with me that's what she said <laughs>